0: Lorene Padilla made a name for herself in the South Bronx, first as a gang member, then as a community activist. Now her story is told in the documentary, La Madrina. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. If you're a longtime listener, you know that before this pandemic, we often recorded at New York's IFC Center. Now the Pure Nonfiction screening series is back after a two-year hiatus with a spring season on Tuesday nights through the end of May. I don't want to say too much about it and jinx it, but we do have great guests coming up and you can find the full lineup in our show notes. The spring series kicked off in early April with the film La Madrina, The Savage Life of Lorene Padilla. It's now streaming on Showtime. In the 1970s, Lorene Padilla was part of the Bronx gang, the Savage Skulls. She was married to its president, known as Blackie. Lorene speaks candidly about the poverty and racism that gave rise to the gangs and the lifestyle of crime and violence. When I became the
1: press woman, then I automatically became what they used to call the first lady. A lot of people will say she wasn't a, a skull cause she never wore patches. But I say to you, I was, because I spent a whole lifetime doing for them what needed to be done. I was in Rumbles. I got arrested. I did some time in the name of the club. So if that don't make me a member, I don't know what the
0: fuck does. In the 1970s and 80s, multiple documentary crews were drawn to the Savage Skulls. The gang members are featured in a film called 80 Blocks from Tiffany's that was produced by a crew from Saturday Night Live and has a cult following. Lorene appears in some of these films as the wife of Blackie, but in La Madrina, she describes a point of view that was missing.
1: These films that have been made about gangs, I've been in these films and yes, I have spoken But there's so much more. The part that women played, that's not shown. It's really us, the women, that held it down.
0: La Madrina, which means the godmother, delivers a nuanced portrait of Lorene and other women in the South Bronx. It traces her evolution from gang life to becoming a community activist, fighting for better housing, schools, and safety. The film confronts some of her darkest chapters. She describes being estranged from her mother at a young age. They were finally reunited when Lorene was an adult, but the connection only lasted two years before her mother died. Despite so much adversity, Lorene generates a tremendous warmth. She's a godmother in the best sense of the word, taking care of everyone around her. The film's director is Raquel Cepeda. She wrote a book about her own New York upbringing, bird of paradise how I became Latina she brings a strong affinity for this community you'll hear Loreen affectionately call Raquel Rocky I interviewed them both in front of a live audience the fourth person in this conversation is the film's executive producer Henry Chalfant he was an early documentarian of the Bronx hip-hop and graffiti scene As the producer of style wars Henry got to know Loreen in the 1980s when he directed a film about Bronx gang members called Flying Cut Sleeves. Footage from that era is woven throughout La Madrina. I started by asking Raquel why she wanted to tell this story.
2: I wrote a book called Bird of Paradise, and the woman that I dedicate the book to and who raised me was a chosen mother. And that person and Lorene, they're the same archetype. It's like Elizabeth and, and, and Lorene. And, you know, I come from that, you know, That that kind of toughness, that tough love, and those are the women that raised me, and those are the reason, and really, the reason why I'm here. Um, So for me, I wanted to pay homage to those, you know, to, to those kinds of women, and I feel like in a very binary, black and white American society, you rarely see stories about just American Latino communities, even though we exist and we exist sometimes outside of issues, you know, around the border or around, you know, the hot button topics. We're, we are part of the American fabric. And you know, and our stories deserve to be told. And as far as, you know, Lorreen's particular story, um, Henry was telling me for years, like, yeah, you need to meet Lorreen. something about Lorene. You and Lorreen, you gotta meet. And when we did, it was like an instant, I think, you know, an instant kind of bond. And I just became, I don't know if as obsessive as the word, but I just became driven and compelled
3: to tell her story.
0: Uh, Henry, can you talk about how you first got to know Lorraine?
3: Yeah, um, well, I, I I made a documentary uh, in the late '80s. Um, it was kind of a, a seven up, but a twenty-year up. I was working with a woman named Rita Fetcher who had footage from the '70s of the of gang kids when they were in, when they were teenagers, and so we said, well, "What are they doing now?" And so twenty years later, we we started talking to them again, and there were five five people, three guys and two women. And one of the women was, was Laureen. And uh, so that's how we, that's how we did it. We made the film and Lorreen was, uh, has these special qualities of uh, I- engagement in the, in the world and a, an ability to project that in her, in her, just her presence. Um, and she was clearly very special. And I think that, um, you know, uh, when when I talked to Raquel and, and showed her the footage, or she had already seen the footage of yeah, this no, film. It, it, this was, well, we had uh, outtakes. We had outtakes,
2: yeah. so we had found a lot of the footage that's that we see that's archival. Actually, almost all of it, like 90 something percent of it has never been seen before and part yeah. of that was the uh, flying cut sleeves. So when we saw the parts that didn't make it into the cut, right. I was like, Henry, come on, this is the film. This was the film.
3: <laughs> right, we and, made a different film. And lucky me,
2: because I get to use it now.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah that's, well, true, z- that's true, that's since you brought that up, I'm gonna bring in Lorraine in a second, but uh, you've told me that story, Raquel, and I'd like you to tell in a little bit more detail about how you did uh, come across all this, this wealth of footage that, that we see in the film.
2: So um, I took, a I was, you know, obsessive about trying to find footage of the Bronx that hasn't been used a million times because we've all seen the same archival footage of the Bronx. And I knew that Baz Luhrmann was making um, the get down and that he had taken a lot of these films, including, like, say, for example, 80 Blocks from Tiffany's, making the Blu-ray and kind of reenacting these. And I'm like, I cannot do what Baz Luhrmann is doing because it's like I'm from the community. I can't I can't just settle for the okie doke. So, you know, I started calling around and trying to, you know, meet people that were working for Broadway Video, um, which is Lorne Michaels' production company, part of Saturday, N- Saturday Night Live. And I tracked down the director of 80 Blocks from Tiffany's, and he said, I mean, I said, I want to make a film about Lorene. He said, Padilla, that's a great idea. He goes, but I haven't seen that footage in decades. Like, he hasn't seen some of that footage since he turned it in since 79, since he shot it. Right? So, what, what 80 Blocks and Tiffany's was supposed to be was a short that lived within Saturday Night Live. But it was so serious that Lauren said, You know, Gary, make the feature. And then the feature again featured, it was really heavily bent on the men. So, finally, somebody that my husband worked with happened to work for Broadway Video. And he said, You know, I think I remember seeing boxes of these, of, 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 of like old uh, 35, 60 millimeter film. Next to old um, Lorne Michaels' old furniture in some warehouse, like in Connecticut or Jersey, so I was like, "What?" So that took another like year, and finally I got all the boxes, you know, um, uh, shipped to Broadway Video, and they told me some of these are in terrible condition, some of these are not even spooled; they're just messy. Take one, take it to Duart, R.I.P. Duart, um, and see if, if it's even if you can find anything. So I turned around and I said, and. Sonia is my witness, Sonia was there, my editor. I turned around and I said, that box, it had nothing on, it was just a plain box. I, that box is talking to me, I need that box. Sonia and I, my editor, Sonia Gonzalez Martinez, went to Duarte, spent some time taping it up and they were taping it up and they were like, okay, let's see if it works. So they put it in the spool, then it was black. and We're like, fuck. Then we see Blackie and we're like, oh good, but fuck. And then suddenly we saw Lorreen. And the day out of the boxes and boxes and boxes, the day that they shot with Lorreen was what was what showed up, and we started screaming, and Sonia was looking at me like, "You a bruja, tu eres una bruja, tu eres bruja, bruja," and then people started coming in like, "Is everything okay?" Because something about it just made me pick that box, and I just went, "Yo, man!" And me and her were talking about this like, "Yo, this this is meant to be. This was meant to be. This is kismet." Like, part of my, you know, part of of my trajectory, part of my destiny is to tell her story. And Sonia, I'm so glad you were there because that's a hard story to believe. And then you saw some of the footage in the film. And also you saw, now, a homage to, a nod to Henry, who we all know, Made uh, uh, a Star Wars is a hip hop legend, uh, especially as it relates to documenting early hip hop and also, um, tra- you know, uh, trains, do- um, uh, graffiti, all kind, all sorts of stuff, right? So some of the trains that were there were also trains that were never seen, and what we got was a Dandy piece, and we got a Lee piece, and Lee called and said. I talked about that train, I knew that train existed, and I've never seen a photo or any images until now. And he got very emotional when he called me to talk about it. So this is the thing, it's just, to me, it's just like a gift to to the community.
3: It's one of the few trains I missed.
2: Yeah, those who know, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't get everything, Henry, come I on.
0: Laureen, <laughs> uh, this film was completed uh, two years ago, so you've had some time to, to live with it now but what's it like for you to, to see your story pulled together in this way?
1: I mean, I'm in appreciation, that's a fact. Um, but, um, you know, I was a little speck in the barrio and a little speck in the South Bronx. And uh, when I started having children, I started to think, Like, I can only leave them education. That's it. I don't have money, I don't have a house, I don't have any of those things. I can only make sure that they get educated because it's the one thing nobody could take from them. But as time went by, then I met Rocky. I just want to say Henry's my older white brother. (laughs) And um, when I met um, Raquel, who I call Rocky, And uh, when I met her and we started talking about the film, I started to think, well, now I have something else I can leave my kids. I can leave them my story. And that's how I look at this.
3: And a lot of other kids, too, you left the story for. For Huh? Dozens
1: and dozens of
2: dozens and dozens
1: dozens of of kids. That's true. Because I had my own seven, but I raised a lot of kids in the block. People that are from blocks, from hoods, from community, they can tell you that there's always that one lady. There's always that one lady, whether it's a black community, Colombian community, Boricua community. It doesn't matter. There's always that one lady, and in my neighborhood, I was that one lady.
0: Uh, Lorraine, I wonder if you can talk about how you became an organizer, uh, because we, you know, you you describe in the film that you left formal education early, you were living in an abusive relationship, but we we see an early piece uh, when you're talking about taking your kids out of school, Like that you had that activist uh, mentality and how did you get that?
1: Well, I grew up in tenements and uh, the last people in one particular building in the Bronx uh, on uh, Tiffany Street was my mom. Um, There were no pipes. There was no water. There was nothing there but big fucking roaches and them fucking rats that looked like cats. And we lived there for for almost two years because we didn't have another place to go. And I started to look around and see buildings being built and, you know, um, I said, you know, Why the fuck can we live there? Like, I mean, I don't understand. So I enrolled my kids in Head Start, and I will say this till the day I die: Head Start gave me a head start because Head Start is is a particular schooling for kids. It's it's community. They bring the parents in. They teach you how to use your voice, and they have the programs, whether it's GD, you know, things like that. But um, so they gave me a head start, and so what happened? Now I'm a mom. So now I'm thinking in terms of I got to make it better for them. I have to. I have to do some small shit in my community to make it better. And so that's when I started to work with um, the school. I became a PTA uh, president, then the president of all PTAs, then a school board member. I was a school board member for like 20 years or more. And um, um, and of course, we we were in charge of hiring the principals and, and and teachers and that kind of stuff, and curriculum. So I have to say that I am I am one that fought. I'm one. Of, I am the first, and then one of the continued fights to put the um, conflict resolutions within our school. I was in District 12 within our school district. So when I saw the power of when you open your mouth, and um, and people are hearing you. When I saw that, I said, "Well, I could take this further," and so then I started fighting about the buildings in my in my neighborhood that that were burnt down. I was tired of seeing. You know, you get up in the morning and you dress your child or children, and then you're walking them to school and you're stepping over rubble. You can smell the fucking fire all over, and and you're looking around and you're saying, "This can't. I can't have this for my children," and so. I, I started to work with Father Giganti, and then from there, you know, I became a community board member and a school board member, and even in the precinct, because I wanted um, less um, abuse with the cops in my community, so I joined that, and that's what I did. I just kept joining shit. I never even realized. I just kept joining shit, or if I went to a meeting, we vote for Lorene, and I'm like, okay. You know, things, and it really was things of that nature. And it's funny because I had a conversation a couple of days ago with my oldest daughter who's in the audience, and I was telling her those same words. I said, "Um, you grew up in a community. I wanted my children to grow up in a community. And for me, community is the lady across the street knows you, the one down the block, the guy in the grocery store, you know, and uh, if my son or daughter had a beef or a problem with yours, you come to my house, you knock on the door. You know, listen, Lorraine, you know, your son, he pulled my, I had an incident like that, he pulled my daughter's book bag. So I tell her, oh, okay. I called my son, I said, get over here. And I strained it, and I told her, you don't fucking touch her, you understand? And And that was the community. And my kids grew up where they can go outside and play. Yes, you know, their father, Blackie, and myself—we were kind of like hood famous. So, you know, they were like, "Don't oh, fuck with them." That's Blackie and Lorraine's kids. But at the same time, I gave my community love, and that's what I got in return. And so, I started to create communities because it's—it's it's the only thing that I felt would give my kids a chance.
0: Raquel, you have Lorraine at the center of this, but there's those marvelous scenes where you've gathered her together with her friends, um, and uh, it feels like you're really documenting a, a generation of of women. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about you know gathering those women together and you know what was it easy for them to you know get to tell their stories in front of a camera?
2: I think it was pretty. Um I mean it's never easy to tell your story and be vulnerable but I think because they understood and I think you know you know people you know at least in my community the people that I'm talking about you and and and, and Elizabeth and JJ and all, you know, you have a sixth sense. So you could smell like when somebody's just trying to go in, do a drive-by documentary, exploit it, and then move on. They, you know, I really spent, I spent time, I spent more than a year, you know, not even um, uh, with the camera on, so I can get to know folks and, and then be available. And then, you know, we have so much in common that it was basically kind of, I don't know, seamless. Like one day the camera was just there um, and yeah, I think, I think that it's not about me creating a safe space, it's about the fact that we recognize one another and I think that they were even like, oh wow, out of, out of especially Laureen, out of all the people that have come over the decades to film me and to, and to, and to make, you know, to come and take pieces and leave, you know, this is, this, she's one of us. So you, when you, you know, when, you, when you're around your own element, you tend to be a little bit more, you know, open um, and, and, you know, and, and I think that's, or, or it, the women that end up showing themselves in the film, it's just an organic, you know, uh, it's just, it's her community. It's an organic relationship. Um, when I met Liz, she was with Lorene and they're always together. So, you know, that was part of it. Like she came, one came with the other, right? <laughs> so, um, and, you know, so it was a very organic kind of, you know, special, uh, uh experience. And I also you know, had the pleasure of seeing like her daughters grow also, you know, cause the, the, you know, like the, seeing them like um, go through their tribulations and, and, and also be like fed and informed by their mother and her struggle and them getting to know each other in an even deeper way because of this story. Cause you know, she didn't share every single detail. So they're, they're hearing it, they're seeing it, they're curious. I feel like, you know, the bond, that Lorene has a has a family with very strong women And uh, they're not strong in a a way where it's unfeeling, where it's not vulnerable, where it's not, but it's just, to me, was very inspiring. So it's good to see the generations and to see, you know, from, you know, Lorene down to her daughters, to her granddaughters, probably great-grandchildren at this point. Um, So, you know, it it was a a really satiating experience for me. The most satiating experience I've had so far uh, in, in creating anything.
0: Lorraine, you talked about wanting to give a, a gift of your story to uh, to future generations, your children, and, and people of that community. Um, but what was it like telling that story? What was it like when Raquel was showing up, asking you to talk about some of the hardest things you've gone through and some of the more joyful things you've gone through?
1: I'm not. I'm not. E- I'm not easy to be vulnerable. Um, I've had to uh, grow a thick skin and uh because as rocky said not everything is in the film i'm you know i've survived a lot of things i've su- i've survived other things besides you know domestic violence i've survived rape i've survived child molestation you know child abuse um so it's not easy cuz you have to go deep in when you have to answer the question and um you know, many times it kicked in me, those feelings. For example, when you see me talking at the um, coffin that I'm talking about my mom, um, I was crying in the audience. I was crying because um, that was coming from from my belly. I always wanted to have a mommy. And so to have a mommy for only two years, it was very, um, painful for me, but I am a better person for it. So, throughout the film, I knew that I had to be honest, that I had to tell my story as my story is, and not embellish or deny any part of me, because when you meet me, this is what the fuck you get. You get me like the way I am. I have a foul mouth, you know, um, so I, I wanted to make sure that that was projected in the story, like the real me. So because of that, and because Rocky was so easy about it, because she became family, you know, she, she's family already. And so that, that made it even easier. So it wasn't so difficult, you know, to tell my story. Plus, you know, like they said, when I was praying in the park, I do have a big mouth. I do.
0: Uh, Raquel, I wonder from your perspective what it was like um, asking these stories uh, uh, from uh, from Lorraine. It,
2: it well, for me, it was an organic conversation. i had I had, you know, I also, you know, have a not a, a very dissimilar uh, background. And she and I had so many things in common and some of our traumas in common. She read my book. And actually, after you read my book, I remember she called me. I think you read it in like a day or two. And you're like, okay, Rocky, we're doing this shit. Rocky, we're doing it. Um, because I put myself out there and I also didn't keep, you know, secrets. And I said, look, I want to, you know, uh, if I'm going to write anything, it has to be with warts and all. And that's one of the things that attracted me the most about Lorene. You know, it's not like some kind of person who's recreating some kind of like um, uh, character. She is who she is. And for me, it's she makes community activism. She makes it very accessible because you don't have to have been perfect or come from a rich family, or have a, a Ivy League education to make a change in the world. Um, anybody can do it. You just have to have the desire. And and for me, it's easier. You know, to me, it's easier to accept uh, 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 the message when somebody's walked in my shoes. Like you know, and 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 you know, and that's really. And and Sonya felt that way too, because when Sonia our editor, who I worked very closely with, um, and you know. In, in um, to, to create balance, right? And in, in when we were crafting the story, you know, it was her story in some ways too. And she grew up in the South Bronx and, you know, and had a similar background. And what do we want to tell? She teared
1: up sometimes. She teared up. She
2: teared up when we were editing. She teared up, all, you know what i so, But it's because we wanted to show, you know, the fine line. No, we don't have to show every single bad thing that's happened. You know, there is hope, even though in these communities they're tough. We, you know, we've had, um, about, you know, uh, experiences in life that you know, have kind of hardened us, but at the same time we haven't forgotten to laugh and have a sense of humor. So I wanted to have a strike a balance between that and also show folks that no matter where you come from, you can make a change. And if you make a change that doesn't make it to the White House or whatnot, or, or you get international press over it or you become viral, the fact that you can change somebody who's in your building, somebody that you know on the street, somebody that you really don't know, a stranger's life, that's part of, I believe, um, uh, that's what some, something that's missing um, in, in, in the way that we communicate now, today, and also something that I think will keep the world pushing forward. It's the human will to do a little something for the next person.
1: You know, my mom, I, I speak on my mom and how tough she is, but my mom raised me also. Um, she had, uh, you know, I, I'm Boricua, I'm Puerto Rican, and, and and I'm Latina. So a lot of people in the audience might understand whether you come from Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, it doesn't matter. But my mom had a lot of sayings. A lot of them were in Spanish, of course, we call them refranes, you know, like, este, eh, todo lo que brilla no es oro. You know, she always has sayings. But one thing that she, that's, I have to, I have to say is, my mom always told me, if you go through life knowing that you'll never meet a stranger, you got a good cause going on. And so I've never met a stranger. Um, My kids sometimes, up to now, they complain. Yeah, because, you know, uh, they'll come, like my my youngest daughter that lives with me, she'll come out the room, then I have two people in the living room, she's like... And then she'll come and tell me who the fuck are that. <laughs> and I don't worry about it. Because I've never met a stranger. When I meet you, I want you to be my family. And so um, I try to project that. And if there is a message, you can all live that way too. And... uh And any tiny thing, like she said, that you do for your community, whether you got a street light up, whether you got the garbage picked up, whatever it is, you're making your, um, you're giving your footprint to that community. And from that community, someone will grow to do it in their community and
0: so on and so on and so on. I wanna thank Director Raquel Cepeda Executive Producer Henry Chalfant and Lorene Padilla for speaking with me. Their film, La Madrina, The Savage Life of Lorene Padilla is now streaming on Showtime. Thanks to our team, sound recordist, Rashan Castro, series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anahousen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.